It has been said that we are but one generation away from forgetting our history. Welcome to American Heroes Network, where we serve our American tradition with Gary Ray. In our program, you will hear firsthand the personal accounts of heroes whose unselfish actions have contributed to the traditions and values that represent the soul of America. You'll also hear from our partners and affiliations presenting news events and ways that our veterans and their families can rebuild their lives. Now, here is Gary Ray. Today is March 28, 2017. Good morning and welcome to the American Heroes Network Radio. As always, my co-host is Lieutenant Colonel Bill Forbes, U.S. Army retired. Good morning, sir. Great to be with you. All right. Now, what did you think of last week's show, Bill? Uh, outstanding. Uh, vets Helping Vets HQ uh, doing a magnificent job in preparing uh, folks there to uh, get their claims together for service connectedness and sent off to the VA. All right. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Now, as far as uh, you know, uh, who we had, we had Bernie uh, Pasquale. I'm trying to pronounce this correctly. Pasqualini. Pasqualini. Pasqualini, correct. Chairperson, president for Vets Helping Vets HQ. They train volunteers to become advocates by teaching them to assist veterans in receiving their benefits that may be available to them. They can do this in person via phone, internet, they do the whole around the world as long as you're a U.S. military and preparing them, uh, you know, to meet up with their veteran service officers to help them file claims. They assist veterans and their families during financial emergencies and they also help with memorial services for our fallen comrades to help support the family. And they strive to fulfill our veterans' needs to hold in the idea that no project is too small or too large. If you happen to miss that last week's show, be sure to listen to the archive show on the AmericanHeroesNetwork.com. Now, Bill, as always, you always have some good articles for us. Uh, and I think that the first one uh, that you told me about this morning was kind of, uh, uh, it was mind-blowing. I didn't realize the, the numbers in that as far as uh, the, the amount of suicides. Well, absolutely, uh, Gary. You know, suicides have been a concern for us, I mean, uh, for a long time. You know, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe uh, has, um, has been quoted as saying, when you get into a tight place and everything goes against you till it seems as though you could not hang on a minute longer, never give up then, for that is just the place and time that the tide will turn. So we have this article today that I thought was quite interesting, uh, uh, mental health and suicides and not giving up on life by uh, uh, a writer, Ralph Jones. And this is according to the uh, American Foundation of Suicide Prevention and the Centers for Disease Controls. Approximately, Gary, 45,000 individuals commit suicide each year in the United States. That is about 121 suicides per day. Suicides is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. For every suicide, there are 25 failed attempts. Can you imagine? And the number of admissions to hospitals for suicidal attempts is close to a half million per year. And contrary to popular belief, the rates of suicides are highest 
in our age groups among adults ages 45 to 64. That's of importance to us in the veterans community. The majority, 7 out of 10 being males, and although females have the highest number of suicide attempts. And, and Gary, the primary concern here is the reason behind uh, this article being written is the growing number of suicides among our young people and military veterans ages 15 to 24 in particular. Mm-hmm. U.S. Department of Veterans reports that approximately 22 veterans commit suicides each day. These are the highest rates the VA began keeping records of going back to that study that they did in 2012. And, you know, we have some concerns about that 22 a day because, yes, we as do. you know, we had 21 states to report, and the remainder didn't. And three states with the highest population of veterans, California, Texas, and Florida, was not in that 21. So it's still a major concern with suicides. Wow. That's the, those attempts are close to about 500,000 per year. That's... That- that's right. That's sad. There, there's something that has to be done about this. Well, uh, I think we may hear a little bit about that today. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. Now, yeah, we also but, have the other thing is what, with claims now? Well, yeah, and, you know, uh, Bernie Pasqualini probably won't be happy to hear about this, but the, 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 the VA, uh, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, are alerting us that Disability claim backlogs are on the rise. However, they say that uh, it's only a temporary problem due to unexpected uh, rise in the number of new cases that flooded into the system over the last uh, few months, about 30,000 new cases. I think when we get this advance notification, Gary, there's Mm -hmm. probably more to come. And, uh, you know, the question has always been, is there enough uh, staff uh, and personnel to, uh, to, to handle this? Right. And uh, so what they're doing now is they're having people who are already on staff to work longer hours with overtime and uh, trying to get some, uh, some new people into the system. But as we know, that long delay with service-connected disability claims really presents a problem for our men and women who've served the country and they're looking for some financial assistance as a result of uh, their service. Right, exactly. Well, I appreciate the articles, Bill. And again, yes, we we have to keep uh, reminding ourselves uh, if you have claims, be sure to you know to to sure be sure to uh, contact a veteran service officer uh, for their for help. All right, now Bill, let's get on with the show here. You have the honor of introducing our guest, Lieutenant Colonel David Tharp. And indeed, it's an honor, Gary, to have Colonel Tharp with us. Lieutenant Colonel Tharp is a licensed psychologist assigned to the. United States Air Force Academy, where he works at the Peak Performance Center. Colonel Tharp has 
specialized training in addressing psychological issues related to basic cadet training. Uh, Colonel Thorpe uh, utilizes the Defense Department's uh, Defense Veteran Brain Injury Center training and integrated and disseminates information to roughly 1,400 cadets each year. He performs a series of other duties related to training and supervision. Before this, Colonel Thought was assigned to the to a triple-headed position as medical advisor, preventive medicine, and environmental engineer, uh, assisting Brigadier General Jeff Kendall, uh, who was the commander at Kandahar Airfield in Kandahar, Afghanistan. Colonel Thorpe is a senior-level psychologist and manager at the Waco, Texas Department of Veterans Administration. He is also the chief executive officer of CombatPTSD.org, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization which provides military-grade training and free resources to veterans experiencing the invisible wounds of war. Colonel Thorpe, welcome to the American Heroes Network. Welcome, sir. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you doing today? That's Good. Great. Yeah. Well, well, we'll get off uh, one of the main questions here, uh, uh, David, was what was the deciding factor for the development of CombatPTSD.org? Well, I'll tell you what. I was um, When I was a NATO medical advisor in Kandahar, as you spoke about, um, there were one of the reasons that I decided to uh, deploy to Kandahar specifically was because I wanted to experience everything that, that our folks go through. And as a provider, all I could think about was how dare I treat people if I don't really understand and know what they go through. And so what I did was I um, ended up going to Kandahar. And uh, at first they were going to put me in a very different position, but I landed as a medical advisor, tried to explain that uh, I'm a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. And they were sort of like, well, you're NATO, close enough. So I learned a lot about how NATO works, and uh, in the process, I identified probably well over 300 people that got killed or uh, seriously injured during my tour. Um, I also suffered uh, a spinal cord injury slash illness when I was there uh, five months in, and so the last month was very difficult for me, but thank God I had a neurologist there who could treat me. And as I came back through the system that I ran, the medevac system, um, I was um, blown away by how people were treated when they came through. Um, matter of fact, on the positive side, uh, when I went through LR, uh, Lonsdale Regional Medical Center, those guys are phenomenal, do an amazing job. But as I went through the rest of the system, I found that there were a lot of providers who just didn't really understand or um, could relate very well to what our guys go through. And so um, in the process, um, I'll give you a little quick story of what happened to me, if that's okay with you all. Sure. Okay. So my wife, uh, well, I was at Air Command and Staff College in residence, and my wife and my kids joined me there. And while we were there, my wife, who uh, was going to be an MD and still and actually is now, um, decided that she wanted to join the Air Force. And, uh, and that was a surprise and shock to me, but I'm, you know, very, very supportive of that. And so um, she had graduated from boot camp, and we, I just got back from Kandahar, Afghanistan. And uh, we decided to go, of all places, uh, when we were in Montgomery, Alabama, to um, Texas Roadhouse. So I'm sitting there in Texas Roadhouse, and throughout my deployment, 
we were getting rocketed by these Chinese 107 rockets, and um, half the time the alarm system would go off before the rockets came in and half the time after. But what basically mm-hmm. happened was over and over again every single day uh, when those rockets would come up, we would, it would come across, we would hear the sound, we would hit the ground, and then wait two minutes. Uh, and then uh, most people would uh, go to shelter, and I would go to the JDOC, the Joint Defense Operations Center, to um, apply the medical uh, response that we would need to do. Well, when I was at Texas Roadhouse, of all things that happen, somebody has that alarm on their phone. So guess what I did? What's that? Hit the ground. Exactly. Hit the ground. I'm laying there with the peanuts. I'm covered up. I almost, <laughs> actually, I couldn't decide whether or not to grab my wife on the way down, but for whatever reason, I didn't. I don't <laughs> interpret that. Uh, but <laughs> so there I am laying on the ground, and I realize what I'm doing. And my wife is just staring at me, and so is everybody else in the place. <laughs> and so I start to dust myself off, and she's like, well, what are you doing? I said, because I didn't want to be embarrassed, which was too late. I said, you know, I'm just checking out the peanuts down here. <laughs> and she's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, just want to make sure they're all good. So I sit back up on my chair and she's like, do you want to talk about what just happened? I'm like, no, I really don't. And I was, I just felt completely alone. And as a psychologist who has, I have a doctorate and three master's degrees. I just sat there and I'm like, how in the world did that just happen? What just happened? And so it started me on a journey of understanding um, PTSD and post-traumatic stress but without the disorder and what we call oftentimes in the military COSAR, Combat Operational Stress Reactions. And it depends on um, how you view what we do in the military and the after effect because that really does impact whether or not people end up with a diagnosis, in my opinion. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, in the military, we're taught situational awareness constantly. You know, you ask any military person, you know, when can you not have situational awareness? And they'll say, you have to have it all the time. And so one of the things is, is that when you have situational awareness all the time in theater, when you come out, the issue is, is that we often have another word for that. It's called vigilance. Um, and when can you not be vigilant? Well, you can't. You have to do it all the time, which is another word for that is hyper. So what the military looks at as situational awareness, others look at and diagnose it as hypervigilance. Now, why is that so important? Because it's one of the diagnostic criteria, PTSD. All we're basically doing is applying that which we learned in theater, and we're still doing it when we come home. The problem is, is that we often get up-trained in the military tremendously. We get a lot of up-training, but there's very little down-training that we get, and that's part of the reason why I decided to um, create CombatPTSD.org. All right. Appreciate that story. Also, if you have any later on, we can definitely, uh, we would definitely like to hear them. Uh, all right. Well, we're going to go ahead and jump into a break. I just want to remind everybody that we've been contacted every week by nonprofit organizations that we have had the pleasure of interviewing, asking for our help in promoting their events and fundraisers, their missions, or locations that they serve. To celebrate our fifth year, we're offering an opportunity to make a nonprofit stand out above the rest and a way to maximize your events and fundraiser to promotions. We'll be adding another section to our website very soon. This new section will inform our listeners and donors of premier grassroots organizations that are truly helping and making a difference with our veterans and military families, and it's coming very soon. You're listening to the American Heroes Network Radio, powered by Voice America on the Variety Channel, and we'll be right back. (laughs) 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. For those corporations or organizations who wish to support our veterans, sponsoring and promotion on the American Heroes Network has never been easier or smarter. As the only network focused to specifically reach the military and veteran population globally. For more information, email us at sponsorinfo at americanheroesnetwork.com. By providing a unique blend of information and advocacy, we are helping our American heroes and their families to heal, successfully transition into civilian life, and to thrive in their communities. This generation will not be forgotten. Today's military are our sons and daughters. Listen live to the American Heroes Network, the worldwide voice for our military families and veterans, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. All shows are archived on American Heroes network.com and syndicated on iTunes. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into American Heroes Network. If you want to find out more about us or to contact us with questions or comments about the show, please send an email to American Heroes Network at gmail.com. That's American Heroes Network at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Well, welcome back. We're here with our guest, Lieutenant Colonel David Tharp, CEO for CombatPTSD.org. David, why don't you, you know, there's so many organizations out there, you know, uh, nonprofits that are coming up with new ideas uh, on how to help uh, these individuals. And uh, what, how does your organization differ? You know, that's an excellent question. One of the things that, um, that uh, I challenge the the Air Force gurus on 10 years ago um, was the what we call evidence-based treatments. So um, just for example, uh, one nationally known organization has spent well over $100 million on PTSD research alone. That's apart from what the government spends. It's wow. The amount of money that we are spending on PTSD research is phenomenal. And one of the questions is, what kind of, you know, what are we getting for our money? When we talk about translational research, as it translates from research into practice, um, real-life answers to people that they need, what are they? What are we getting for that? And I think that's the crux of what we, what we really need to focus in on. Um, to date, there hasn't been a lot of significant um, information that's really been out there. As a matter of fact, we're still using some of the same, quote-unquote, evidence-based treatments um, that we've used for the past 10 years. Um, two of those specifically, cognitive processing therapy, or CPT, and prolonged exposure, PE, um, have been around for quite some time. Now, here's where I had one of the biggest challenges. I'm not sure if you know this or not, and many of our listeners may or may not, but the etiology or, where, or, or the background about how they came up with a lot of these um, treatments was based on female sexual assault. Oh, no. What were big... Be- yeah. And not only female sexual assault, but car victims. So when I asked the, the, the senior leader in the, in the Air Force, why are we using treatment that's designed for rape victims for combat trauma, 
The answer he gave to me was, well, David, do you have anything better? And at the time, I didn't. I said, no. And he said, well, it's the best that we have. So we've got to have something. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. So one of the issues that I've been looking into is um, looking at the the concepts of of these uh, rape victim trauma treatments and asking the question, is combat trauma different? And anybody who's been been deployed will say, I would guess, definitely yes. Um, First of all, rape victim trauma is often a, um, a victim response. Where in the military, we're not most of the time victims. We're the ones who bring aggression. Um, the other thing is, is that um, specifically in CPT, you see out of the five components, they talk about two of them being self-esteem and intimacy. Now, if you think about that, that makes perfect sense for somebody who's been um, victim of trauma or rape trauma specifically. Uh-huh. But when we come back um, from deployments, Intimacy and self-esteem are not on our high list of things to deal with. Um, more along the lines for military is things like survivor guilt, moral injury, grief and loss. Those are the things that we focus in on. So um, one of the things that I've really been challenged by is to create and come up with a new trauma treatment um, in order to address the military issues specifically. In the process of doing that, that's why I created our very first book. It's called the Combat PTSD Reintegration Program. Um, It's a training series, and the whole idea is a lot of our combat veterans don't even want to ask for help. As a matter of fact, (laughs) they're sometimes the very last people that want to ask for help. I I read in the book that... That there, are, that there are two basic reasons oftentimes why people come to see us in the very beginning, and that's threat of the love or threat of the law. Either the law is threatening them, either go get help or we're going to put you in jail for something you might have done, or somebody loves them dearly and says, look, um, if you don't get some help, I'm out of here. And I always tell people that's a blessing because if you have somebody who's threatening, that means they're still invested. Some people just walk out. So the good news is they're still there. Um, so one of the things that we tried to do is to put in our book the language that military personnel understand. So we take military language training, concepts, strategy, all of that stuff, and instead of doing the up training that we got in the military, we're actually doing the down training. And so we're trying to help people to understand why they do some of the things that they do. And, and I'll give you a quick example, if, if, sure. if that's okay with you. Sure. Um, one, of the things, one of the things that people really struggle with is the aspect of when they see something incredibly traumatic, um, if you see that uh, for, uh, you know, over a period of time, which is different than rape victim trauma, most of the time rape victim trauma is, is a, a one-time event. It, it, it could be multiple, but oftentimes it's a one-time event. Combat trauma is very different you are at risk of your life getting, of, of being killed every single day. As a matter of fact, when I was in Kandahar, I chose Kandahar over Kabul as a NATO assignment because I wanted to be close to the fighting. If you can believe this, every single one of the Air Force officers in Kabul, in the JDOC, where I was in Kandahar, were killed by an Afghan pilot. Wow. We didn't even realize the magnitude of that no. until we saw it. In, in, with our own eyes about what had happened. So the issue is, is that every single day somebody can, can get killed, and, and I saw that every single day. And so that's one of the major issues between what I see as the current treatments for PTSD and what we're proposing. So it's a process. 
And so one of the things that we decided to do was to write the book in a way that people could understand and relate to. Um, we give away all of our resources for free, and we have 17 modules. <laughs> of course, as a psychologist, can you imagine the very first question or module that I ask is, am I normal? And, and the reason why I do that is because um, when, I'm, when I'm working with combat veterans, the first thing I'll do is I'll say, okay, everybody raise their hand if you have sleeping problems. Everybody raises their hand. And I said, now keep them up there if you have these answers to your questions. How many of you are irritable? Anger outbursts. Um, how many of you have, you know, feel like you've gained weight? How many of you guys, and then I just keep asking the questions. How many of you have nightmares? And they, they just keep ha- their hands up. And I said, okay, are you normal? And inevitably, somebody says, we are for combat veterans, and the answer is exactly right. For people who've been through combat, you're going to experience a lot of these things that happen to us. As a matter of fact, um, I always think about civilians. If they'd gone through some of the same things that we did, they would experience some of the same things. And how I, how I validated this was um, I asked the USO, um, the ladies that were there, and they said, yes, we experienced some of the same things, except the difference is we don't get the help that you guys get. And I thought that that was, you know, that was pretty telling. So one of the issues that we decided to do was to take each and every component that we could think of. For example, um, we get used to seeing the world as a, as a risk and a threat. So we kind of have these glasses that we put on. They're like sunglasses, only they see the world now very differently. Um, Because we are exposed to a lot of things that are very bad, we begin to see the world in that way. And we try to do everything in the military to mitigate risk because that's what we do. We want to make sure that people are safe and we try to mitigate it. The issue, though, is when we come out of theater, we don't know enough and we're not trained enough to take the glasses off. And so we keep seeing the world as if it's a risk. And how does that play out? Very simple. You go, let's say you go um, into a new restaurant. Let's say it's your wife's birthday. She wants to go to a new restaurant. You're like, okay, sure, let's go. But what happens is, is you get there, and what's the first thing that military veterans who've been in combat will do when they're in a new surroundings? Gary or Bill, care to, care to comment? When you go into a new room that you've never been into, one of the first things that combat veterans will often do is look at the exits. They'll make sure that they, they know where to get out of that building. They'll also, if they go into a restaurant, look at every single person and size them up to see whether or not, you know, they're a threat. And so what happens is, is that we often will either avoid those situations or if we do go, we're going to be on constant high alert. And so it's interesting what will happen. This spouse will be sitting across from us and, you know, we'll be talking to them, but then our eyes will shift and we'll look off to the side. And they know right. what we're doing. And, the, and, and she may say, well, you're doing it again. And you're like, what? What are you talking about? And, and, and she's like, I know what you're doing. You're looking to see whether or not, you know, it's safe. And you're like, well, I, I just want to make sure everything's okay. I can do this. And she's like, no, you can't. And you're like, yes, I can. I can focus. And so you start spending time with her. And then all of a sudden, guess what? Your eyes divert again. And it's because right. we're so well-trained in the military to, uh, to mitigate risk at all costs because we don't want bad things to happen. We, want, we go to war to create a safe world, mm-hmm. but the problem is we often I, – I wrote an article called The Home or the Away Game, and, and what it is is that when, when you're playing sports in the military – or I'm sorry, when you're playing sports in high school, um, which one do you guys like to play, home or away games? Home. Home. Which, yeah, <laughs> home, exactly. And the reason is because you've got the home field advantage. 
The right. issue, though, is, is that when we um, go up against terrorists, we want to play an away game. We do not want a home game. And so the issue is, is that we go away and we carry things like our A, B, and C bag when we deploy. But the problem is, is that when we come back, we, we bring back our A, a B, a C, but also this thing called the E bag. It's our emotional bag. And oftentimes it's even heavier than the A, B, and C bag combined. The problem is we don't even know it until after a month or two when we get back and the honeymoon phase is over. And then all of a sudden we get back into life again and we see all of these issues that we're having coming up. And one of the issues that I think we're, we're not doing a very good job of in the military is helping people to come back. We need to get people all the way back home. And part of the issue is, is that when we start asking them questions, as soon as they come back like they did me, they will ask questions like, well, did you ever see anybody get killed? Uh, yes, of course I did. I was the medical advisor to the general. What do you think? And the nice social worker who was doing her best job said, okay, um, did you have any, have any sleeping problems? And I'm like, are you kidding me? We got rocketed every night. What, what are you talking about? You know, right. And then she would continue on. Do you, do you ever find yourself getting irritable? You mean like right now with your questions? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and so That's right. We kept going on and on. And, and finally she's like, you know what? I, I think you have PTSD and I think you're irritable and I think you've got anger problems. And I was like, wow, you don't really even understand what you're asking people who come back. Of course, they're going to have these issues. I think we, what we need to do is let people, and, and by the way, if you indicate that you have a problem at that point in time, they'll stop you from going home. They'll keep you wherever you are. And that's not in our um, military members' best interest. We need to get people back with their families, let them spend time with their families, and then bring them back and let them work on some of these issues. Because trust me, the issues will surface. And uh, what we lose a lot of times is that camaraderie. When we come out of there, we need to get that back. And so what we decided to do in Combat PTSD is to write the workbook, to get it in their hands where they can ask for it for free. It's on our website. And the idea is they can read this and, and, and work through it at their own pace without anybody knowing anything. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but did you guys know that what's happening now is that all of these electronic medical records, because of the agreements that are being made with the DOD, are now popping up for all of the military personnel. So if you didn't disclose something and you went to your private um, insurance company, guess what's happening? It's starting to show up. And now... I was just told when I was um, at our reserve training last week that one-third of a unit was held back because they didn't disclose certain conditions that they were being treated for on the outside. The military knew nothing about it. And so one of the reasons why I think that people do that is because, not because of stigma, but because I think they're afraid of losing their weapon, their security clearance, and their job. Wow. So this That's creates a- one heck of a dilemma because on one hand, we're taught to have integrity, which I do at the Air Force Academy. Integrity first, we do that. But the, also, but the, also, the other issue is, can you imagine bringing somebody like me back and, and saying, if you indicate yes on any of these questions, we're going to not let you see your family. That's no. really not helping our veterans. No. We're not doing them a service. And so... I even had it where a gentleman wrote to me and he said, I started out answering the questions honestly. And as they continued to unfold, I realized I better change my answers because otherwise 
they're going to call me in and ask me a lot of questions. So by the time the interview was over, I answered no to everything. Right. You didn't have a choice. <laughs> right. But anyway, and so what it, basically, gonna... what it basically does is forces military members into making a decision. Are you going to be honest or are you going to and disclose what's happening or are you going to risk losing potentially your, your, you know, the, the use of your weapon and, and your career? And, and on top of all of that, can you imagine, as far as I understand the research numbers, and I could be wrong, but I think this is correct, do you know what the percentage of military members are that actually reach 20 years of retirement? Do you know what percentage that is? No. Bill, do you know? 19, 19%. 19%. It's very small. It's very small. And may, somebody might be able to correct me on that, but that's the numbers I've been given. That's why they're trying to do the new um, you know, retirement system in January 1st, 2018, because so very few people ever who want to get into the military, who want to make it a career, not even one-fifth of them can ever get there because of injury or whatever the issue is that comes up to them, and so they never can make it a career. We've, we have got thousands of military members that are out there who wanted to serve their country and got injured and now can't. And, and could never then get a retirement from, from the military, even though that was their heart's desire. Wow. We created Combat PTSD to try to help bridge that gap, to let them know that they're not alone, that there is a future and a hope. And we want to be able to help them to understand that they're not crazy and they're not broken, although sometimes we feel that way. The issue is, is that what we're experiencing is normal for people who go to war. Um, and I often tell people this, and then I'll, I'll answer your other question or, or your next question or take a break. Um, I tell people two things. There are two rules in war. The first rule is people die in war. And the second rule is you can't change rule number one. And even though we take on a lot of responsibility as military personnel to bring everyone home alive, we feel a tremendous sense of responsibility and guilt when that doesn't happen. We will actually even promise family members we're going to bring them home alive. And the reality is we are, we are not even capable uh, of making that promise, even though we want to do it out of empathy. And I, and I explained to people, there, the reality is there's only one way you can circumvent those two rules, and that is if you're omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. And as far as I know, there's only one who was, and I'm not it, and probably neither are you. And so the issue that we face is trying to help veterans come back who've had survivor guilt and moral injury and take a very heavy responsibility for people who've died and, and take that as a personal, you know, issue. And, and they carry that weight when in reality people die in war and there's nothing we can do about it sometimes. Um, and, and it's very sad and they feel very much alone. And then they feel as if they say anything, they're going to potentially lose their career. It's a setup for disaster. That's right. Well, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. You're listening to the American Heroes Network Radio, powered by Voice America on a variety channel, and we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
by providing a unique blend of information and advocacy. We are helping our American heroes and their families to heal, successfully transition into civilian life, and to thrive in their communities. This generation will not be forgotten. Today's military are our sons and daughters. Listen live to the American Heroes Network, the worldwide voice for our military families and veterans, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. All shows are archived on AmericanHeroesNetwork.com and syndicated on iTunes. For those corporations or organizations who wish to support our veterans, sponsoring and promotion on the American Heroes Network has never been easier or smarter. As the only network focused to specifically reach the military and veteran population globally. For more information, email us at sponsorinfo at AmericanHeroesNetwork.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are tuned into American Heroes Network. If you want to find out more about us or to contact us with questions or comments about the show, please send an email to American Heroes Network at gmail.com. That's American Heroes Network at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back. We're here with our guest, Lieutenant Colonel David Tharp, CEO for CombatPTSD.org. And Bill, I know you have a lot of questions. Well, I do, but I'm going to ask one now. <laughs> David, okay. you know, uh, as I listen to you, and it reminds me of a question that I constantly have in mind, is what is the cost of war in terms of human capital? Uh, I think I've heard uh, many of those things uh, and, and what you've presented so far, post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injury, uh, generation of family issues for our members who serve this country. You know, we do an outstanding job in preparing all of our men and women when they enter service in some way with a basic training to uh, uh, whether it's preparation for war or a, or a particular skill. And uh, but but the problem I, I, I'm seeing is that when we return to home and community after serving on the battlefield and combat. Should we not have a basic training for our reintegration back into to, uh, society, into home and community after leaving the battlefield in combat? Bill, I couldn't agree with you more. As a matter of fact, come join us at combatptsd.org. I'm ready to have you here. I'm serious. Um, it, it, it truly is about the reintegration process. Um, you know, um, one of the things that the commander at the Roll 3 said to me, he, he was a Navy captain, brilliant guy, and he said something to me that I thought was very interesting. He said, you know, David, after four months, I send all of our trauma surgeons, all of our techs, and all of our nurses home. And I'm like, but sir, they love what they're doing. They feel like they're making a difference. All of their training for years and years has come to the culmination of this point. Why would you send them home? And he said, because the issue is they begin to think that war is real. And I'm like, uh, so do I. <laughs> and it confused me. And I said, I, I really don't understand. He said, the issue here, David, is war is not normal. We got into this war because we want to create a safe and stable 
environment and state for this country. But after you see enough devastation and destruction of the human body, you begin to think that this is normal, and it's not. We need to get these people back home because home is normal. War is not normal. And I really didn't grasp the concept as well as I do now. And I think he's got it exactly right. One of the things that a lot of our combat veterans will often say to me is this, I want to go back. I want to go back into the fight. And it's because they feel compelled to get back in. And we've left things behind or whatever the case is. But the reality is, is that we all do this for a season of our life. And it's, war is not designed for us to be at war, even though we are in the long war. Um, it, personally, it takes its toll on us. And I think that the commander had it right. I think the issue is, is that we need to understand that we do this for a season, and we do it for a good cause. But it's time to come home. And if people lose sight of that, they, they seem to think that they need to stay until, until we have what's called our in-state complete. Do you remember when President Bush, and, and I won't get political at all, but he was on, I believe, a carrier, and in the, on, in the back, um, uh, you could see it across the back uh, of, of that ship. It said, mission accomplished. And the question was, was it really? And the question is, with our end state, is it really accomplished? I think that we need to ask ourselves that as combat veterans. What is our end state? Is our end state that we go back and finish what we started? Or is it that we're supposed to create a safe world? And knowing that we're not the only ones that can do that, um, the fact is, is that we need to let other people step up to the plate as well. We need to make sure that we do what Commander said, and that is bring people home before they start believing that war is normal. We need to get people all the way home, too. And that's where I think the reintegration process comes in. We need to do a better job of that. I think that we're setting ourselves up. I think we're seeing that in the suicide rate. I think we're seeing that because of the evidence-based treatments that we're using that are based oftentimes on uh, rape victims. I think we need specific training for military personnel, and we need to bring our folks back as a unit after they've been home for a while. Let's say the honeymoon phase lasts for one or two months. Bring them back. Bring them back with their families. And let's, let's get the experts in there to help them to reintegrate. Let me share with you a personal story that happened to me, if I may. Sure. One of the things that I really wanted to do was to play football with my son, who was four years old at the time when I, when I deployed. Unfortunately, because of my spinal cord illness injuries that happened, I grabbed the football and I tried to throw it, and it fell at my feet. I couldn't even throw it. It was impossible to do so. And he came up, and he grabbed the football, and he put it in my hand, and they said, Daddy, it's okay. I'm just glad you're home alive. It's those kinds of experiences that, that really bring it home, the fact that we need to bring everybody back home. But the problem is, is that oftentimes we feel like we've left something undone. And part of the reintegration is being able to see how we're reacting and responding to our family. Um, we were just recently on a cruise, and I was amazed when my wife was videotaping our son who was dancing on the cruise. And I heard myself on the on, on the speaker. You couldn't see me, but I kept yelling at Peyton. I kept saying, stop it, quit it. You need to stop doing that. And it wasn't until it was recorded that I actually saw it. And I was like, I asked my wife, Catherine, I said, 
do I tell my kids that? Do I tell the kids that a lot? And she's like, yes, all the time. And I'm like, holy cow, I got to stop doing that. So one of the things I think we need to do is when we bring people back as a unit, we need to help to, to get into their families and, and videotape some of this stuff and help people to see how they're reacting and responding to their kids and to their wife. Because I don't think oftentimes we actually see how angry or how frustrated or irritable we really are. And then when, it be, when it's on videotape, it becomes very clear and obvious. Um, I think that reintegration is something that we need to spend some significant amount of money doing. I don't see us doing that necessarily right now. I know we have some avenues by which we're trying, but I would like to propose like a $5 million grant um, to be able to, to actually bring back a 100-person unit and bring their families after three or four months or two or three months, and then let them actually do the reintegration process and do it with their peers and their buddies, because I think that is when we'll be able to really make the kind of difference that's going to that's gonna change things. And I can tell you, if you give people a passion and a new mission and a future and something to live for, they're not going to be interested in killing themselves. You know, we're not trained to shoot ourselves. We'd be the worst military in the world. That's not what we do. We're trained to kill other people. So, how in the world have we got it to the point that we're willing to turn a weapon on ourselves? That's why I think we need to do this with peer-to-peers. We need to train our peers how to do it, and we need to be there for their families and, and make sure that we bring in professionals who actually have been in the military and understand this, because that's, I think, the way we're going to be able to really do reintegration. I think that's so important because my belief is, David, that the residuals of our wartime experience stays with us almost for a lifetime. You know, mm-hmm. uh, 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 if we could silence every war of weapon in every instance that is existing right now, we would see the effects of this for the next 50, 60 years. And I'm probably not giving the, the exact amount of time because... Our World War II veterans who are 90-plus years of age into the hundreds, 105, 110, we're still trying to correct some of these same things that we're talking about today that have occurred uh, from World War II to Korea to Vietnam. So, um, you know, that returning to home and community We've got to find a way to change that around again, in my view, because we've invested so much in those men and women. It's important to yes. continue to use that. that it's a national resource. Amen. I couldn't agree more. Um, one of the things that I often tell people, and I see people, uh, World War II veterans, even in the VA, you know, I tell people time doesn't heal because if it did, every World War II and Vietnam veteran wouldn't have any, have any issues. It's, it's not time that heals. It's what you do with the time that matters. And I, I, I think you're right on. I think we need to find ways that we can reintegrate people back into society because veterans are a tremendous asset to our country. They are the ones who raised their hand and, been, and said, I'm willing to sacrifice my life if it requires it to, to serve our country. What better men and women do we want leading this country and serving um, those are the folks that we really need to get out there. That is true. That is true. Now, we know how um, I, I know we're getting close to the end of the hour, and I just want to uh, find out. You're always looking for volunteers, aren't you? They are the yes, backbone for every organization. 
Yeah. You know, and how, we, how we can are. these volunteers uh, get involved? I mean, uh, why don't you give them the information, uh, the website address, sure. and so on? Oh, sure. So um, it's uh, combatptsd.org. Um, we, one, of our, one of the slogans we use is that we know how to combat PTSD. And so if you go on our website, um, any, anyone, veteran, family member, caregiver, professional, all you have to do is request um, our online re- or our, uh, our resources because every one of them is free. We're underwritten by the Rogers Foundation and a couple other grants. Um, as cor- of course, you know, as, uh, we're going to continue to do this as long as we have the money to do it. Um, Dr. Williams, who's a psychiatrist, helped start it. My wife is a psychiatrist. Um, she's finishing residency, residency, and she, she's helping. If you can imagine, even my NATO commander, Brigadier General Kendall, is on our board, and he's serving. And we do all of this without taking a salary. We write the books. We do the conferences. We're actually doing the videotaping right now so that we can put them on our website. And the idea is we're going to try to cut the cost of shipping the books out make everything online for free. So if people are interested in either me coming to speak or having a group of veterans to be able to go through the workbook, we are more than happy to come to your city and make this happen. Um, we want to get this information out there. Again, a lot of people, you know, want to do, do some good, and, and we appreciate that and we respect it. We decided not to go with a for-profit model. I'm not about that. I'm for a nonprofit. I want to do everything I can for free to get this information out to veterans and their families. There, we have two books, the Combat PTSD Reintegration Workbook, and the second one is called What Happens in War Doesn't Stay in War. And the reason why we wrote that is because we know there are a lot of veterans who can't really talk about their experiences, but their family members often want to know what they've gone through. And so we wrote that book to help people to understand what it's like when, when you go to war. That's true. Now, David, do you have any events coming up? No, right now we're specifically focusing on making the videos because we're realizing, like, I'm one psychologist. I can only be with a few people. What I'm realizing is that if we can create a robust website, that we can put all of our modules, we have 17 of them, and put them on the website, what we're going to do is we're going to take and do similar to what you're doing right now, only live with live veterans, and we're going to videotape it, and we're going to put it on the website for free so people can download that chapter for example, am I normal? And then they can watch other veterans interacting with myself or another instructor um, on that material out of the workbook. And so the idea is we want veterans and family members and professionals to be able to go onto our website and have 24-hour access, free access to all of our materials and to be able to, to learn from it. And hopefully the idea is then they can reach out and not become isolated and avoidant and numbing and um, really reach out and ask for the kind of help that they really need. That, that's our intent. The other All thing right. is we're working on books number three, four, five, and six right now. And wow. so um, <laughs> those, those resources um, are going to be forthcoming here in the next, well, I would say next few months, but I do have to sleep sometime. That's right. <laughs> well, David, uh, we only have a couple minutes left, and it was a pleasure having you on our show today. What would you like to share with our listeners in closing? It is my heart's passion and desire to stop the suicide rate and to help people with the invisible wounds of war. We are each other's support, and we need to reach out there. I'm finding that combat veterans, know they really care, but oftentimes they don't know what to say or do. 
we're hoping that this resource that we created is going to help bridge that gap. What I've asked people to do is simply this. Ask for the book and critique it. Rip it to shreds. Tell us what's wrong with it. Because that way they're at least reading the book. And if they give us feedback, that's only going to make it stronger. I'll share this real quick story because I know we're ending. Yeah, we only have about 30 seconds. Go ahead. Okay. A friend of mine named Mark, and he asked me point blank. He said, David, did you call my wife? And I said, what? And he said, did you call my wife? And I said, no, I never called your wife. What are you talking about? He said, I swear to God, you wrote that book for me, and you talked to my wife, and she told you (laughs) what to write. That's the kind of impact this book is having. Um, All right. Bill? Well, Colonel Thorpe, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for your service to this great country of ours and your continued service to uh, to veterans. You know, it's veterans helping veterans that will get us uh, to the uh, to the goal line with this. And, you know, it appears to me that uh, this is a family business since you've got your wife involved. So uh, I know you're going to do great and continue the good work. All right. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you, David. Uh, Thanks again to all our listeners and supporters. And remember, we spotlight and promote the best available information of interest to America's veterans and their families anytime, anywhere, and on any mobile device. I'm Gary Ray, along with my co-host, Bill, and our guest, Lieutenant Colonel David Tharp. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you next week. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of American Heroes Network. Please join Gary Ray again next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a great week. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america variety channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericavariety.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network it's staff and management.